0: Hello, this is Rebecca Buchanan, co-host of New Books Network, New Books in Popular Culture. And I am here today with Anna Harwell Celenza, who is the author of Jazz Italian Style, From Its Origins in New Orleans to Fascist Italy and Sinatra. Anna, thank you for being here.
1: Thank you. It's a real thrill.
0: So I'm wondering if you could start out by just talking about how you came about writing this book, this topic,
1: Well, there were sort of two things that came together at once. First of all, I was really lucky in that I had the opportunity to live in Italy for four years. My husband got a position uh, in Italy, and I got to sort of tag along. And I was, at that time, the first year of his position, um, I actually had a sabbatical. uh, And I was had planned to work on a book about duke ellington as intellectual and his connections with europe and then i got to italy and started checking out jazz clubs and reading um italian scholars and sort of poking around into the jazz scene and sort of stumbled upon that this story about jazz during world war ii and before and and the fact that mussolini was a actually a big supporter of jazz which surprised me because like most i assumed that italy and was like germany and that that they treated jazz as a quote degenerate uh, art form, but that wasn't the case. Actually, it was very much uh, supported. So there was that side of it. On the other side, um, I had I've always you know enjoyed swing music, and I had been really on uh, listening to a lot of Sinatra and early Sinatra, and realized that the very first recording we have of Frank Sinatra in 1934. He doesn't sound like Frank Sinatra at all. He's got sort of, sort of this nasally voice and clipped phrasing, and he's singing scat. He's sort of imitating African American jazz. And then the next recording we have is five years later, and suddenly it sounds like the Frank Sinatra we all know, with the smooth, you know, very round voice and beautiful, um, uh, suave phrasing. And I went, "Wow, what happened in between?" And <laughs> and it what I realized is as I'm listening to a lot of jazz in Italy that was written between thirty four and thirty nine, there's this one singer, Natalino Otto, and I was like, Well, wow, that sounds a lot like Frank Sinatra and You know, in Italy, they call Natalino Otto the Frank Sinatra of Italy. In truth, it's the other way around. And I realized that Natalino Otto and other singers, um, their music was being broadcast on Italian-American radio in New York during those years. In fact, Natalino Otto even visited. And I realized, oh, there's a real story here about what was going on in America and even some things that we think of as a very American sound and what was happening in Italy and the fact that there was a lot going back and forth between Italian-Americans and Italians and jazz.
0: And so you start by giving us this history of sort of the Italians and the origin of jazz, right? And and you in no way remove the origin of jazz from New Orleans, but you, yeah. you right, which I think is really important to say, like, this is not saying that this music is sort of take, right? Because we think of jazz often as um, its origins in New Orleans and African-American musical genres, and you're not pulling that away. You're just sort of adding to this history that we have.
1: So, can you talk oh, a little exactly. bit about that? Exactly. Yeah, in fact, I, I would stress that uh, I, jazz is something that originated in the United States. It grew out of African American culture in New Orleans, but realized New Orleans also had lots of other groups there. It was a real drawing point, before, especially before 1900. For all sorts of ethnicities. It it really was a mix of, of various people and the Italians that came before 1900, like around that right after the civil American Civil War, um, they mostly came from Sicily, they came from southern Italy, they were encouraged by the Italian government to, to go and seek their fortunes elsewhere because in the south of Italy, after the unification of the country, there was a lot of poverty, a lot of unemployment. And so the Italian government was sort of encouraging people to go to countries where you can earn some money and send it back to Italy. And kind of, they even called it the colonization. They'll colonize America. And so (laughs) a lot of Italians, you know, prior to 1900, went to New Orleans. In fact, more went to New Orleans than they did go to New York in those early years. And... They, um many of them were illiterate. They uh came with very little money, if any at all. And so they moved into the same neighborhoods where former slaves had moved in New Orleans and where um there was a lot of poverty. And they were seen on this sort of the same economic level. In fact, Italians were, they were categorized even by the Supreme Court in the United States as not white. So they're... They very quickly mix, and they also find a lot of um, similarities, for example, in Sicily, uh, funeral procession with funerals, you often had a band that would follow the, the the hearse to the to the cemetery and that was a practice one also found in New Orleans um, there was a influence of North African music on southern Italian music, and so the the you know the rhythmic quality wasn 't you know seeming very uh foreign to them when they encounter uh west african rhythms in early african-american jazz so um what and so that there's a lot of interaction that happens in the very very early years of jazz and then the thing that really takes off uh, is that um the first jazz recording so the first commercialized recording of jazz is by a group called the original dixieland jazz band they were white all of them and two of them and the band leader was Italian-American. And because of that, Italy very early on said, ah, we helped make that. <laughs> those were those Italians that went and colonized the U.S. And so Italy is the only country in Europe that, that partially claims credit for the creation of jazz as being something native.
0: Right. And I thought it was really interesting because we do, I, I, for myself, like when I think about Italians and Italians coming to America, it is New York, right? It's New York, it's New Jersey, it's yeah. this East Coast. Like, And so you talk about New Orleans and you talk a little bit about um, San Francisco as well. And then you also sort of at the beginning of the book in the first chapter talk about futurism and jazz and what was happening mm-hmm. in San Francisco. So can you talk a little bit about that as well?
1: Yeah, there's a real – there was and to this day is still a noticeable divide between northern Italy and southern Italy. Northern Italy is more industrial. Um, It's always been wealthier uh, and southern Italy has is more agrarian. It it has suffered poverty and um, the like. And so those divisions were there in the uh, late 19th, early 20th century too. And what's interesting is – southern italians when they immigrated they immigrated to the east coast first to new orleans because of agriculture and the jobs that were there when the port when new orleans loses a lot of its wealth after the beginning of the 20th century you see that the the, it shifts and new york begins to become the main port of entry for southern italians but um, uh, in california Uh, In the 19th century, when you have a gold rush that starts in the mid-19th century, a lot of northern Italians, people who already are wealthy, um, who are very well educated, tended to go to Los Angeles and San Francisco, um, not to actually dig up the gold themselves, but to create um, and found businesses that could then distribute that. So you had – they set up hotels. They set up – uh, um, you know, restaurants. So, so they definitely kind of did the service industry for all of those people who were finding the gold and needing a place to spend their money. Uh, and um, and and so there is a div- the west coast of the United States has many more northern Italian immigrants than than the east coast. And with that, as they come over, futurism in Italy starts in 1909, and a lot, a lot of these. You know, educated folks. Also, this is where the, when the film industry is taking off, mm-hmm. and it, Northern Italian immigrants get very involved with early film in California. And part of that whole modernism idea is futurism. And so, futurism really um, is talked about and finds its footing on the West coast and in California uh, early on. And what's interesting about it is the, the early description of futurism by Americans who aren't there witnessing it kind of gets it wrong. I mean, you know, we, we can now look back and go, Oh, they didn't completely understand it. But what they did catch on to was that it was modernism. It was rejecting the past. It was, they liked mechanical, they liked machines and, you know, cars and Mm -hmm. speed and, Also, for in the u.s these new dances like the foxtrot and ragtime music seemed very mechanical Mm -hmm. thus the assumption was well the futurists would love this and the first use of jazz the word jazz um is uh, before it's ever known in new orleans it actually the the first time it shows up in print is on the west coast uh in 1912. first it's associated with baseball it was a pitch a baseball pitch and then within a year by 1913 you have a cultural historian writing an article in the San Francisco Bulletin, defining for the first time what jazz is. And he says it's a new word and it means a lot of different things like pep and energy and stuff. And he says it's a futurist word. And he ties it to the futurists and their onomatopoeia and, you know, sound effects and modernity. So early on, I'm not saying they were correct, but early on, cultural um, journalists linked jazz to futurism.
0: Right. And and so you do this nice job of like sort of setting it up for us and setting up this sort of more complex or adding to the history of what we already know about jazz in the United States. And then you bring us back. To the Atlantic, crossing the Atlantic, right into Europe, Mm -hmm. and and then into Italy. And so, can you talk a little? You mentioned a little bit about that move of where it was sort of accepted in Italy in ways that it wasn't in other European countries. But can you talk about one thing you mentioned is sort of the rise of the nightclubs in Italy? And but can you talk about that move in the um, what 1918 across back across the Atlantic to Italy and Europe?
1: Yeah, so there's three ways that jazz quickly entered Italy and entered Europe, and it was during World War I. So first of all, it was this recording by the original Disneyland Jazz Band of Livery Stable Blues. Um, They are such a hit. They sell over a million copies the first year that they are um, invited to come play in England. So they go to England and they meet the Queen and the King and they play they record, and they, their recordings quickly spread all over Western Europe. So that's the first way. The second way that it happens is you have um, actual musicians coming over. But these were soldiers. So um, in, in France, you had James Reese Europe. He uh, he was a band leader and a composer, a fabulous musician, African-American. And he uh, convinced many of his uh, musician friends in Harlem to enlist and go fight uh, for the United States in the war. And they were uh, a group. They were the 369th Regiment, but they were called the Harlem Hellfighters. And they were some of the first American heroes in World War One. And when they went to France, they took their instruments with them, and they performed ragged, raggy ragtime versions of uh, popular marches. And so they're and they start to play marches with the influence of what they heard on those recordings by the original Dixieland jazz band. So they're starting to jazz up music. They're playing jazz with, you know, large brass instruments. And um, so that's that's one way. What's interesting is that that's in France. And they're African-American. So in France, very quickly jazz is seen visually as an African-American art form. In Italy, what's interesting is that there were no African-American troops that were sent there. The, The only troops that were sent to Italy... Um, were it was late in the war, they were—they uh, a- basically were emergency troops, ambulance, you know, health healthcare troops. And Italy was so desperate, they were so upset that all these Americans were going to France and not to Italy that they even sent a ship over to bring the American soldiers. And what they sent was the SS Giuseppe Verdi, which was a cruise ship. When the Italians see the Americans arrive, first of all, they arrive on a shishi cruise ship. Second. <laughs> They aren't really coming with guns as much as they're coming with their instruments, because what the we you know we have the the records from the U.S. Uh, Navy uh, talking about. Well, here's here are your orders when you get to Italy, and it was basically there aren't many of you, and Italy wants a lot of American troops. So make yourself very obvious, make yourself very visible. So they sent three bands over, and these and they were all white. Um, and these bands traveled all around the con- uh, all around the peninsula of Italy and performed. So for, for Italians, they see jazz as it's something that's white, it's uh, uh, something that is you know high end, high class because it shows up on a cruise ship, and you have. The American ambassador and the king of, of Italy who are paying for and supporting a lot of these concerts. So it it has just, you know, for Italians, when they first witness it live, it has a very different feeling. And then the third way it comes over is descriptions in newspapers and journalists. And the first article ever written about jazz in Europe was by the Italian consulate in New Orleans because a lot of Italians are asking him, what's this jazz and you're in New Orleans where it's supposed to come from. And he writes an article called American music and dance. And in it, he says, well, in New Orleans, there are two, there's two types of jazz. There's two categories. There's the jazz played by black musicians and they play in dance halls and restaurants and it's dance music. And then there's the jazz played by white almost always Italian musicians and they play in the cinemas in the theaters. And so they, he relates Italian jazz to as sort of uh, a more upper class modernistic. And he picks up on what's been happening in the U S and he says, Oh, and it's inspired by the futurists, and they even play these instruments that are like the intonarumori, which the which the futurists play. So he he you know helps that myth of it being about the futurists, so that the futurists in Italy go, yeah, right, we did that. So the first jazz clubs opened in Rome are by the futurists. They open up jazz clubs. So it you know in Italy it had a very different early life than anywhere else in Europe.
0: Right. And another thing that's really interesting that you sort of – you start to talk about and you mentioned the recordings, but also that because of the gramophone and because of radio, it sort of transformed uh, – how music was played and shared and sort of this modern culture. So you talk, can you talk a little bit about that as well? How recordings and radio played a part in making um, both in the United States and in Europe uh, and in Italy, jazz really important and
1: influential. Well, the, 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 First thing is with a gramophone disc, if you're listening, or the radio, you don't see race. You know, you have to be told what the race of the musicians are. So, you know, if you you haven't ever been exposed to jazz and you're just listening to it, you know, that's up to the assumption of the person listening. So that's one thing, is that you could, in the United States... Um, with early jazz, before those recordings come along, you are in the room with the people playing it. So if there are race issues, and if there is prejudice, that you can't take that out of the question out of the performance. But with recordings, it allowed one first to not think about that. And second, you could have it in your home. Mm -hmm. So it opened up uh, the ability for people who didn't have musical training to have it in their home? And and in Italy, uh, this is you know 1922, which is right when jazz is kind of taking off. This is when Mussolini comes into power, and he quickly sees that you know this is this is music that's exciting the youth. He wanted to, you know, he was the the new leader of the youth. His song was Giovinezza and he. Very much wanted to connect with that. And so he saw, um, especially the radio as a way to connect with a broad audience. And so, well, the other thing you have happening in Italy is that you have the state starting to support, um, the, a, a national system of radio. And on that, we get, you know, jazz becomes more and more prominent on, on the radio in Italy.
0: So, so one of the things, and so that third chapter, you spend a lot of, you know, which is a a large chapter, which is really fascinating when you're talking about Mussolini, right? So you mentioned some of the, the music that Mussolini is drawn to and drawn to, um, the youth, and you you do some contrast Mussolini with Hitler and what Mussolini, right, Mussolini wanting modernism, wanting invention having musical interests. So can you talk a bit about how Mussolini as, um, as an individual, as a character sort of created this space for jazz to flourish
1: as well? Yeah. I mean, the first thing is that um, he had kids and his kids were into jazz and it played at home. And so he used the interests of his children as sort of the barometer to well, how do i connect with the youth so his oldest child Ada who was the love of his life this this little this daughter that he had um he she started collecting gramophone discs very early like right, as soon as they were showing up in italy and the brothers all say that Ada was the one who brought jazz into the Mussolini household so she loved to dance and she you know so she brings that in then you have the oldest son Vittorio he learns to play the banjo at age 12. He's fascinated by these recordings. Um, and he ends up becoming a, a, pretty well-known jazz journalist, jazz critic. He wrote uh, in the 30s, uh, late 20s and 30s, he wrote articles, reviews of recordings that were coming out of the United States, but also recordings that were you know, being distributed in Italy. Um, and then Romano Mussolini, the youngest son, he becomes a jazz pianist. And in fact, after the war, he became one of Italy's most famous jazz piano players and went on to play with, you know, lots of, of American figures as well. So, um, you know, it was it was in the household. The other thing is we, we every once in a while you'll see photos of Mussolini early on and he would do these publicity photos and people would write, you know, books and articles about him. And he always promoted modernist art. He you know, he wanted modernist architecture. He wanted it's not that he rejected Italy past. But he said, we can't live in the past. We can't be just the museum that people come to visit. If we are going to have a place in the world, we need to be the innovators. We need to be the creators. We need to be, you know, pushing forward into the future. Um, And so jazz filled that perfectly for him. So Mussolini also played the violin. And there are a lot of famous pictures of him Mm -hmm. holding his violin. And when asked by uh, journalist, well, who's your favorite composer? He would say Beethoven. That was one he often said. But he would then say, but don't be surprised to learn that I also enjoy jazz music, especially for dancing. And I think it's, you know, really this great thing. And so, um and it, what the interesting thing is, is in Italy, he had, um I mean, in Rome, when he moved to Rome, he had a violin teacher. And his violin teacher was a man named Umberto Bozza, and what a lot of people have never noticed before is he was a jazz violinist. He was the man, he was the band leader in Rome who introduced the tango and the foxtrot to Roman audiences. So even you know you can't hear a photograph, but you know we might think he's playing Beethoven, but he might be improvising you know a foxtrot tune. Mm-hmm.
0: And and so then so we have and you've mentioned this before, right? You, so you go into sort of how. Uh, Mussolini uses the radio for the rise of jazz, right, and the rise of the arts. And so then it allows African-American musicians to come to Italy. And so starting with Josephine Baker um, being the first of – of a series of musicians to sort of visit Italy. And so can you talk, and and what was interesting too, you talk about is how um, black musicians just sort of assimilate in Italy. There, there's not sort of segregation that was happening in other European countries. So can you talk a bit about that as well? And African-Americans coming to Italy and, and being a part of that music culture.
1: Sure. Um, So in 1927 is when Mussolini takes it you know, takes control of all of the radio. It was called E I A R and you have a national radio system. And at the same time he sets up a recording well, a few years later sets up a recording company, Chetra. He also um opens up uh the um, distribution. So you have a lot of foreign recording companies that Mussolini welcomes into Italy to bring in gramophone uh, gramophone discs. So you have Columbia, you have Victor, you have My Master's Voice, you have Odeon. So all, you know, uh, all these from various countries. Um, and he does that. He's very clever the way he does it because he allows those foreign recordings to come in, but they have to be distributed through his state company. So he gets piece of the pie financially mm-hmm. for, for that. Mm-hmm. So it adds a new revenue stream and at the same time is bringing all this great music. Well, in 1927, when this happens, this is when we first start to get at recordings of African American jazz musicians that arrive on Italian shores. And you have Josephine Baker who comes from France. She loves Mussolini. She's enamored with him, thinks he's just this very powerful figure. And she likes the fact that she, that he seems to be welcoming African-American musicians, and he's not imposing protectionist laws in Italy about musicians. So in France, for example, uh, in cafes, they could not hire more than 10% uh, foreign musicians in their cafes, but Mussolini didn't have rules like that. So Josephine Baker thought that was great. Um, in 1927, you also have Duke Ellington, who starts to play at the Cotton Club in New York, and those are broadcast on national radio in the U.S., and Italians can pick it up with their shortwave radios. So you have a lot of people that start listening to Duke Ellington broadcast in the middle of the night coming from the Cotton Club. Um, and you just and you have Louis Armstrong, who comes and visits in 1935. So in the beginning, there wasn't there wasn't talk. In fact, El, in fact, uh, Mussolini in 33 said, you know, racism, I really don't, I don't think there's any such thing as a pure race, which is in, incredible, because five years later, he's gonna, you know, enact the race laws <laughs> right. that separate. But before but a time, there is a, a, an openness there. And he also is says there's anti-Semitism. There's no anti-Semitism. The Jews are Italians just as much as the Italians are Italian in 33. And then in 38, again, the race laws. So there's a, a five-year, you know, five to ten-year window there when Italy was open uh, to a lot of this and fascinated. So when they, when when African-Americans went to France, they would be in uh, there was an area called Harlem in Montmartre, and it was the Montmartre region, of Paris, and it was called, like, Little Harlem, and so all the African Americans, they lived together, there were restaurants that served, you know, Southern American food and all of this sort of thing. In Italy, well, first of all, the Italians are, uh, you know, to this day, they, they really like Italian food, you know, it's hard to have, there's not a lot of ethnic food in Italy, and so um that's not going to happen uh and the the other thing is the um the bands integrated very early so what would happen is let's say an african american band goes on tour and, and visits italy what the Italian bands would do is they would go, Oh man, that's that trombone player is amazing. And they'd offer him this huge salary to stay and become a part of their band. Mm. So you get integrated bands beginning in 1927 in Italy, um, which really wasn't happening anywhere else. And so they, the, the African Americans could find themselves being the star, the, the the feature of a band. Um, but they were also expected to assimilate into Italian culture to, you know, eat Italian food and hopefully learn the Italian language. And um, as one performer, uh, Herb Fleming said, he was also expected to learn how to to learn popular Italian opera arias and do solos off of opera aria tunes. So there really was a way of of Italy claiming jazz, but then also making it sort of fit their sound world.
0: Mm-hmm. And and so then you, you talk about, so the we have the EIAR jazz station, which in <laughs> some ways then starts to sort of challenge and push, and then we get to this black jazz versus white jazz and how that plays out in the Italian press. So can you talk a little bit about the jazz on the radio and then that move?
1: Yeah, well, one of the tricky things is it's not that everyone in Italy loved jazz. Right. The Futures <laughs> loved it, the youth loved it, A lot of fascists loved it. Mussolini loved it. Um, The church did not like it. The Vatican was very much against jazz. Not necessarily the music, but they felt that with jazz came uh, cocktails and cocaine and women's dresses were with open backs and that this was going to lead the women of Italy, the youth, the young girls down the wrong path. So the church was... Adamantly against it, and so when the when the pact was made between the Vatican and Mussolini, the Vatican requested that all those jazz clubs be shut down in 1927. So Mussolini went okay, so he closed those nightclubs. It happened. And then the next month he gives those licenses to the restaurants and the hotels. So basically then the nightclubs open up in all of these other spaces. So jazz never went away. And then he, in 1929, just to sort of, you know, rub uh, his thumb in it a bit more, he starts a new programming on EIAR, the national radio station um, of EIAR jazz. And uh, this is, it's upwards of... um, 6 hours a day on the radio by the time we get to 1934 you have r- jazz being broadcast the the genre broadcast more than anything else on Italian radio jazz is like 25% of all broadcast time on Italian radio but the um, the EIAR jazz was was unbelievable too because the very first broadcast was in 1929 on Easter Sunday so it wasn't just here, we're going to keep doing jazz, but we're going to do it on the holiest day of the year. So there was jazz was also a great way for Mussolini to say, take that to the Vatican. And also the communists hated jazz because they thought it represented American um, commercialism and materialism. So you get two birds with one stone, you get the snub, the communists and the church at the same time by supporting jazz.
0: (laughs) Well, and Mussolini also, you talk a bit about um, jazz and film, right? And how sort of jazz plays out in film and that sort of Mussolini's love for the American cinema. So can you talk a little bit about uh, jazz with, in film as well and how that plays out? Well, again,
1: 1927 is a big year. You get mm-hmm. the EIAR radio um, and you get this pact with the, the Vatican, but then you also get um, the jazz singer the first sound film and Mussolini was very, very interested in being a part of this new technology of, of linking film and sound and having being continuous as opposed to having a live band, you know, playing or a piano playing with a silent film. Um, And uh, I talk a little bit about he he's even involved in that industry a little bit, but um, when the jazz singer comes, That takes off. And then there are a number of other films. But what Mussolini does again, which I think is very smart um, as far as taking control of things, is he, he didn't want American culture to take over. So these American films would come over, but he insisted that they all be dubbed into Italian. So you have a whole new industry that starts in Italy. And it's to this day you go and see Italian films. I mean, American films in Italy and they're dubbed. There are actors that are very famous, like the guy who always is Woody Allen and the guy who is always Tom Cruise. You know, they, if you can get an actor early in your career, you're set for life if you're a dubbing artist in Italy. So they, he, he started this industry of dubbing and he insisted that. Um, because Italy was a great consumer of film he said basically to these American companies we will only allow your films to come into Italy if you pay for us to do the dubbing here because the Italians that you have in the United States they've been there a while they often are speaking dialect they might be from the south and we want you know we don't want a dialect we want proper, you know, quotes, uh-huh. Italian. And so you, he, he sets this up. So not only is the dubbing, but you, you also, also oftentimes have the music that is performed then by an Italian band with Italian lyrics. So a lot of popular American songs get Italianized and transformed and become huge hits. And, and so people watch these films, and although the, what they're visually seeing is the United States, what they're hearing and the lyrics and the words and the ideas get changed to fit this Italian ideal that Mussolini is trying to put forward.
0: Right, And then it seems like because of sort of Mussolini's relationship with jazz that um, the United States is pretty neutral to um, what's going on until Italy invades Ethiopia um and then once that happens everything sort of falls apart right you talked about the racist laws and all that so can you talk a little bit about that sort of turn in Italy and that invasion of Ethiopia and and how that impacts sort of Mussolini and his relationship to the United States as well as jazz
1: yeah I mean if you go back and look at early descriptions of Mussolini remember he was in he was in power a long time you know from 22 to 43 45 you know so he the first 10 years 10 to 12 years the United States saw him as in general as a force for good he was modernizing Italy he was was growing business and there were these great um you know multinational corporations that he was encouraging and building. So the business world really liked Mussolini and everything seemed to be going well until Mussolini invades Ethiopia. And then you first get a backlash of this in the United States. So Italian Americans, uh, there's a lot of anti-italian sentiment in the united states because people see what mussolini is doing is horrible mussolini is the used um uh you know toxic gases in warfare he he gassed the he did some really horrible things when he invaded ethiopia so there are many americans who suddenly see mussolini not as this sort of entrepreneur businessman but as a really cruel and vicious warmonger you know and so that has an effect so a lot of Italians start to feel um there's an anti-italian sentiment and there becomes a big conflict because african-americans for the most part in the united states are on the side of ethiopia so you get a conflict of those who are on the side of mussolini thinking he's doing the right thing and a lot of italians did not all of them but many and those who were on the side of of the um ethiopians thinking that You know, they need to be protected. And a weird thing is like Josephine Baker came out on the side of Mussolini. She said, no, you know, he's great and we should still stand. She regretted that later on. But, you know, so it it wasn't always clear. But this starts a conflict. And then in Italy, what happens is as a, a lot of Italian soldiers are sent over to Ethiopia and for the last, you know, eight years, these young men have grown up embracing, you know, African American culture and jazz and it's modernistic and there hasn't been an issue so much. And you start to get a lot of relationships between Italian men and uh, and Ethiopian women. And then that's when people start to get really concerned in the Italian government. So in order to um, push back against Those relationships of, you know, Italian soldiers marrying or having sexual relations with Ethiopian women, there starts to be there needs to be a separation of the races. And we start to get conversations about, no, these actually these the races are different. And then by the time you get to 38, when uh, Hitler begins to have much more economic control, because when Italy invades Ethiopia, most of the world turns against him financially. There are a lot of um, boycotts, financial boycotts and embargoes. And Germany comes to the rescue. And so from 35 to 38, Italy becomes more and more dependent financially on Germany instead of the United States. And then Germany starts to say, you know, we need to think about these race laws and anti-Semitism. And so in 1938 is when Mussolini and surprised many people implements the race laws that basically takes away the rights um of uh, jewish citizens in italy they're fired from universities they're fired from radio but as Mussolini does in many things he doesn't i mean a rule is made to be bent or broken so what you see in the entertainment world is there are jewish musicians who continue to have very good careers and there are jewish musicians who are sent to concentration camps and eventually die in auschwitz so it there's not a consistency of what happened 38 on in italy
0: right and so then what's interesting too is then you bring in this so germany comes in we have the race laws we have um Issues that are going on in the life of these musicians are changing, but then from this we start to get Italian jazz, right? Italian band yeah. leaders, and this sort of where where you argue that like Sinatra, this is sort of where Sinatra is coming from. With people like Sinatra are coming from then, or there's oh. sort of that history to it. I,
1: I wouldn't say it's where he's coming from because I, the one thing I want to make very clear, Sinatra and was in no way connected politically with any right. Of this. Yes, yes, yes. Um,
0: And the the sound
1: sound (laughs) is before that. So I would say that the Italian sound of jazz starts in the late 20s Mm -hmm. because you get these um, Italian conservatory trained musicians. The big difference between Italian jazz and American jazz is whereas most early American jazz musicians were self-taught or self-trained, they didn't go to conservatory. Almost to a man, every Italian early jazz musician had – trained in a conservatory. They had former formal training. So they approached it from a very different way. Swing really took off and vocal swing, so a, a singer with a large orchestra, a swing orchestra, that really takes off in Italy even before it, it does in the US in a big way, because you've got this it's more of an orchestrated sound. Um Paul Whiteman was a big everybody loved Paul Whiteman and Paul Whiteman loved the Italians. You know, there was uh that that sound. And so um, that is encouraged all the more. So it, it, that that Italian sound has been building and when we get to 38, it's like that is the only thing there will be. And so you, you do still have, for example, this famous trio, the trio Lascano. They sang a tune called Il Ritmo della Louisiana, which was really the St. Louis blues which was also called La Tristezza di San Luigi. And, you know, it's written by an African-American, W.C. Handy. But they can still record that in 1940 because, even though they were Jewish, they could still record that in 1940 because they had Italianized it. They, they, They didn't just translate the lyrics. The lyrics are completely different. And they're in Italian and they're singing it in a softer, much more lyrical style. So the, the sound of Italian jazz, there are a few changes I can, you know, note right away. The first is the focus on the voice and for solos, a focus on lyricism. So that, you know, what we think of as a, the bel canto sound from opera, kind of taking that, that lyricism and bringing it into jazz. That's, you know, a, a, a pure, um, uh sound as opposed to a rough gravelly sound that's the first one the second thing is they add the violin the you have a you have jazz fiddles you have jazz violin very early on and a very famous american jazz violinist was joe venuti you know an italian american so that idea of of the jazz fiddle is that's a prominent instrument the third thing is they bring in the accordion they add the accordion to the rhythm section And so uh, a famous performer, Gorni Kramer, who was an Italian, he he brings in that accordion sound. So there are things in the instrumentation and just the focus on lyricism and very much upbeat. You don't get blues. You don't get a lot of sad songs. So Italian jazz is much more upbeat, much more lighthearted in its style.
0: And so we have this Italian jazz and we have this coming and then, Italy goes to war, right? And so you move into what the importance of sort of joining Germany and going to war and what that does for Italian jazz. So can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So in 1940, the first thing is in 1943, the King of Italy decides that Mussolini has led them down a very dangerous path. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so he basically fires him as prime minister. He, you know, um, and arrests him. So Mussolini is arrested in 1943. He is no longer prime minister. Um, he's put in a prison off, you know, up north. And the uh, Germans come in with helicopters and rescue him and, you know, break him out of this prison and take him up into the the northern part of Italy, north of Rome, and set up uh, a new kind of puppet government. So what happens in 43 is Italy is divided in two. You have Rome and North, which is controlled by uh, the Germans and Mussolini, and then you know just below Rome in the South, which is still Italy, uh, and it has the minute you know, right after Mussolini was taken out of power. The king said, we are with you, America. They switched sides. So in essence, you have a civil war that begins um, with with Italy being divided between the Allied and the Axis forces. And so... Um, we also begin to get a war of the airwaves because as the Americans come in, they when they entered Italy, they came in from the south. They came in through Sicily and then Naples. And as they came in, they took control of these radio stations that were in the south. And they came with V-discs, these victory discs. And these were long playing recordings of American jazz. And they played this music. And so this was very much to say, this is the American sound. We're bringing it to you. We're, this equals democracy. We're bringing you freedom. And at the same time, up in... The north of Italy, Mussolini is all of these musicians. And the other thing I should say, jazz was always something of the north. Naples and Sicily never embraced it. They saw it as something that they they stuck with Neapolitan folk song and mandolin. So they 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 didn't like it. It was in Mussolini that frustrated Mussolini. So Mussolini um, in the north takes all of almost all of his musicians with him with these radio stations and he keeps broadcasting Italian jazz. So you could turn on your radio and either hear, you're hearing basically the same genre of music, but you're either getting the Italian version in Italian, or you're getting the American version often with African-American performers. And there's this sort of clash, this using jazz to try to you know convince the Italians to either go to the North or to go to the South.
0: Right. I, I thought that I found that, the victory discs, really fascinating. <laughs> I was like, this is great. So then, but and then, so you talk about sort of this division and this sort of nation divided by jazz in some ways. Um, and then you, towards the end, you also finish up with then what jazz looks like in post-war Italy and sort of who fared well in this sort of post-war Italian jazz, you know, the jazz war, the the sort of nation divided. So can you talk a bit about that?
1: Yeah. So, so Mussolini has used jazz. He's, you know, he hangs onto it as a symbol. There are, there's certain songs especially too that associate performers, especially this group called the trio Lascano, who, which today people say, Oh, that's the Andrew sisters of Italy. But again, they were recording before the Andrew sisters and they kind of were rivals with the Andrew sisters all during the war. So um, you have this sound that's associated with Mussolini Um, and then Mussolini the Germans lose and Mussolini is uh, shot uh, executed and not only that but then his body is thrown out for you know onto the streets and the Italians beat him and they hang up his body and their photographs taken it was a very vicious death Um, and and it's under the the anger that people felt because he he had become a very vicious ruler this is you know, it's not all fun and games with the jazz. He 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 did a, a lot of horrible things, but when he is killed and America then has taken over all of Italy and all it all gets unified, all of these musicians suddenly um, kind of change their story. They're like, "Oh no, I I was I was oppressed. I, we didn't get to play. We were underground. You know, we played jazz underground, but no, Mussolini hated jazz. So the story very quickly changes." Um, right after the war. And so some musicians are able to pull that off. Um, they stop singing this, you know, jazz. They they move towards singing songs that are more in the style of Neapolitan songs. Um, and there is a real re- rewriting of history. Um, and, you know, everybody has a different story. Natalina Otto says basically i you know i don't even want to think about it i wasn't part of that past i I, you know i never sided with him um and later on even late in life in the 60s there were a group of people who wanted to do a commemorative recording of his early because he was he he, you know he's continued to be a big star in italy but just changed the style of singing he even had a song in 58 called no jazz he doesn't want to (laughs) sing jazz and um but he uh in, in towards the end of his life, they wanted to do this big memo recording of, of some of these amazing songs that he sang, you know, in the in the 30s um, and, and early 40s. And he said, absolutely not. I, I, I am against it. I will not allow you to to re-release these songs because they will remind all of us that we were connected to that time and that we did dance to those tunes and we were part of that system. So he, his thing was, let's pretend it never happened. Mm-hmm. But then you have an, another singer like um, uh, Rabayati, Yati and he, he basically said, you know, all of these people who have changed their stories and said that they weren't part of the fascist regime and that, that they weren't singing for mussolini they're a bunch of liars and they're trying to make themselves out to be heroes, but it's not true. You know, that man tricked us. There were 45 million of us. We all loved Mussolini and he he tricked us. So, you know, his thing was we got out. We got tricked. You know, we, we went the wrong way. But but you know, we we're, we're on the right path now. And then you have the trio Lascano and they come back and they keep their same sound. They they try to sing their same songs after the war um, and they try to go on tour and nobody wants to hear them. Because you hear the trio Loscano, and it's Mussolini. I mean, Mussolini. These these were three Jewish women, originally from the Netherlands. They came to Italy in 1935. They changed their name from Lescon to Lascano, dyed their hair dark, um, took Italian first names and were the darlings of Italian radio. Mussolini, after the race laws went into effect, gave granted them Italian citizenship in 1941. And then they joined the fascist party in 1942. Mm. Very much were spokespeople for, um, for fascism. And when, after the war, they tried to come back and sing their same repertoire, and nobody would have it. And so they actually immigrated to Argentina and spent the rest of their lives performing for all the um, fascists that had left, you know, and went to South America. So they had their career for that audience that wanted to remember that time. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, tricky, it's a tricky thing.
0: Right, and so you so you bring it, so you end everything and bring it back to this idea of how or the discussion of how what also that end of the second world war um and and what was happening in Italy with jazz also impacted italian American artists in the United States, and so can you sort of talk a little bit about the impact of this Italian jazz? On folks like Sinatra and Bing Crosby and some of the Italian Americans in the U.S.
1: Yeah, yeah. Bing Crosby not so much, but the the Italian American singers. So after World War II, you had all these lots of American soldiers who had been a part of the Italy campaign. And they love when they entered Sicily and Naples, they were greeted as heroes. They were liberating the country and they were warmly embraced and had wonderful relationships. And many of them married Italian girls and brought them over. So Italy, Southern Italy was really in the hearts of a lot of these soldiers. And when they came back, you see this love and fascination for Southern Italy in the United States. So you get lots of pizza parlors that open up all over the country. My mom grew up in Iowa and she remembers having her first pizza pizza after World War II when in Iowa a pizza parlor opened up. You have, um, you have, you know, Chef Boyardee spaghetti. And you also have in music what we call the Italian decade. And that was when Dean Martin, Perry Como, Louis Prima, they're singing all of these songs that are referencing Italian culture, like um, uh, um, like for example, Angelina. Angelina was a very popular song for Louis Prima, um, and you also have uh, Mambo Italiano, Rosemary Clooney, although she's not Italian. She sang that song. So these are songs that are um, that were created in America, but they are imitating... Neapolitan folk song, but sort of jazzing it up. So it's not an Italian genre. It's a, an American genre pretending to be Italian, you know, and it, that becomes very popular. Frank Sinatra at this point after World War II, his career starts to falter. He tries to do it. He cannot. He, he, he doesn't sing he's not Neapolitan, his identity was northern Italy. his mom was from northern Italy. in fact, his mother was from the, his mother's family was from the same region near Genoa that Natalino Otto was from. so you know this, the, the the sound, the way of singing in northern Italy is very much the Sinatra sound, not the politics, but early Sinatra that sound is the North Italian jazz singing sound, and all the Dean Martin and all those other guys that is very much, and et- nope. I lost you. And so I think the the end of the book is to maybe put in context. One of the reasons Sinatra sounds so different from all the others is he's coming from a different musical region of Italy than, um, than Dean Martin, for example.
0: So it's been really fascinating talking to you. I know that um, your book just came out, right? <laughs> Um, it did. But do you have anything else in the works or are, what are you, are you doing sort of talks or touring with this book or sort of where are you at right now?
1: I am. I'm, um, I'm, I'm going, you know, I'm going around in various cities and uh, you know, just came from Trinity college um, up in Hartford, Connecticut this weekend, gave a talk there on the book. They were a wonderful crowds. It was really great. Um, one thing I am doing uh, that's coming up is in New York, On May 13th, the Saturday before Mother's Day, I'm giving a talk uh, in New York City with an organization called One Day University on, you know, this is the 100th birthday of jazz as far as the first recording was 1917. Grand jazz had been around before then, but, but commercialized jazz. It's the 100th anniversary. So I'm doing a talk on 100 years of jazz and a lot of that will have to do, you know, I've got to bring in a little bit of the Italian and I'll be doing a book signing after that. But then the project, another project is I'm I'm writing a chapter now, not a chapter, but an article that sort of, if there had been another chapter in the book, and that is when the Americans came in, once the war was over and they started to do reconstruction in Italy, they, they realized that their two biggest... The, the the two biggest things they had to fight against was first they had to encourage this forgetting of of jazz and fascism, trying to break that connection. But at the same time, when fascism is is shut down, that vacuum is filled by communism mm-hmm. in Italy, more than in any of like communism really took over. And so the Americans also go, how can we how can we fight against this? So jazz becomes. A weapon. People often talk about the jazz ambassadors program and that in 56 is when, you know, jazz became a tool for diplomacy. I actually argue that the the testing ground for that was Italy in, in the late 40s and early 50s when communism was something to be reckoned with. And since the communists had always hated jazz, you, you got two for one. You could fight the fascists and fight the <laughs> communists. You bring in a lot of American jazz, and so uh, jazz really takes off in Italy um, in the 50s and 60s, but it's repackaged. It's no longer, no one talks about it being Italian. In fact, jazz is defined in Italy to this day as an African-American art form um, that is purely American. So Italians are embracing a foreign art form. That's how it's described now in Italy.
0: That's fascinating. So this has been great. Um, Anna, thank you. Again, this was Anna Harwell, Chilenza, who is the author of Jazz Italian Style, From Its Origins in New Orleans to Fascist Italy and Sinatra. Thank you.